Hello and welcome to another fun-filled edition of Rank and Review. I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. This episode I am joined by regular contributor Mr. Jason Debray. He hosts another podcast that's healthy for your ears called the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Uh, I've showed up on that a few times as well, so you can hear my voice on that podcast as well. But the point is is that the the shelf shedding movie show doesn't get uh, addressed as much as it should have during our actual conversation so i wanted to hit that here the shelf shedding movie show hosted by jason dubray the subject of this week's episode is cults it's uh, not about cult movies it's about movies on the subject of cults and that's a particularly interesting subject to me. It's something that uh, uh, I went through a phase in my, my, I think it was like my early 30s or something like that, where I was reading up on it a lot. I was just like strangely drawn to the subject. And uh, it's always sort of stuck with me. So here's six movies on that subject. And it's, it's a dour bunch. Hard rank and uh, a hard bunch of movies. Um, so get ready for some dark conversation. Uh, if I come off insensitive towards belief systems or religion, that's not really my intention. This, this, a lot of the stories have that negative aspect to them. You should go into the podcast with that in mind, as well as the fact that there's going to be spoilers for the six movies that Jason and I are talking about, as well as frequent coarse language throughout the podcast. But let's all of us try to be adults about this, shall we? If you have feedback, and I hope you do, please send it to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I would love to hear feedback. It's It was a long, dark 2020, and I want to put that behind us, but to, it's been a while since I've gotten some feedback, so I would love to hear from, from my peoples. How about a cult of Rank and Review, if that's possible? You can also check out the website at rankandreview.ca because I'm up here in Canada because I am Canadian. And uh, that's, that's how, I, how I do. Thank you for listening to Rank and Review. Please tell that other movie fan in your life about the podcast. Now let's talk about cults.
So it's very nice to see you, Mr. Dubray. I wish you could be here in the room. I, uh, I am getting really sort of tired of having to constantly talk to people through the computers. I mean, I love that we live in this age of technology. I shouldn't complain. If we were in a different time, we'd be doing this over the phone or not at all. So <laughs> beggars can't be choosers. But it's been getting increasingly hard to get these interviews done, to get people, you know, it was hard before the age of COVID, and now I feel like I'm just pestering all of my movie friends all the time. <laughs> so I appreciate your enthusiasm. We're going to talk about a subject that's kind of, I guess, near and dear to my heart. I don't know if... I, I always assume my experience is similar to everyone else's, which is probably not true, but I like to think that a lot of people go through a true crime phase at some point in their young adult phase. I remember reading the book about the Zodiac and, uh, you know, getting into true crime and freaking myself out and uh, stumbling into cults, particularly, obviously, the Helter Skelter talking about the Manson cult and um, one of the ones that's going to be mentioned, or I guess, or, or inspire, in the inspiration for one of the movies we're talking about, the Sacrament, the Jim Jones cult and that really disturbing recording of him howling and squealing like a madman to all of his people as they die drinking their Kool-Aid. That's actually where the term drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. I kind of let go of my true crime thing. I mean, I mean, who doesn't get into the odd documentary here and there? But I never really let go of my fascination with cults. I think cults are really scary. Like, real-world scary. Like, as much as I can get behind sort of the H.P. Lovecraft, Cthulhu, Mythos cults where there's like the old ones need to be awakened, I kind of put that into my, you know, supernatural, fun, escapist category. What the best of these movies are, are a reflection about the real world. About how anything can become a cult and anyone can become a cult member. So that's where I'm starting with this episode. But hi, Jason. Welcome back to Rank and Review. Thanks. Uh, I'm happy to be back. You can always call on me for to be a guest on the show. I will do it enthusiastically, uh, no matter how we do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think you, you bring up a good point. You know, I can watch however many horror movies and not and be entertained, but not really that bothered by them. But if I can watch a, a single documentary or an episode of some show which deals with cults or uh, true crime or certain mass murders, it, it just really bothers me. I actually lose sleep over those things way more than watching a slasher film or uh, uh, yeah, a creature feature. Um, I remember being a kid and there was that uh, the first round of the Unsolved Mysteries show uh, with Robert Stack. And his voiceover was so scary and ominous to me as a as a kid. And I, I would watch, I don't know why I watched this more than once because I would lose sleep over these these murder stories. I kind of like to go back and watch some of those episodes to see if they would have the same effect on me now. But uh, certainly, a, like a good documentary on this subject really really bothers me, and the fact that people are willing to accept wholeheartedly what these leaders, as charismatic as they are, are saying, and in many ways kind of uh, using religion 
Um, it's and not all of these are, are religious based. There is one for sure, which is a little bit more like the Manson idea. But um, but using religion to manipulate people in this way and make them believe that they are talking to a human who is a god. And just the number of people that get caught in that, it's, it, it, it scares me. It, it really scares me. And these films, um, I hadn't seen any of them before. Not one. And I'm happy to say that I recommend all six of them, which made the rank really difficult. But I did. we had a snowstorm here, uh, not to date this episode whenever it comes out, but we had a snowstorm in Saskatoon, and I watched all six of these over two or three days. <laughs> Kind of binge them. Uh, they're all very dark movies, but it's it was interesting for me to sort of see my reactions and um, and sort of see how to me like the first two thirds of most of these movies are really solid. And there are points when you are watching. This is how good the acting is in these. The charismatic leaders when they are preaching and giving their speech, where there's little grains of truth in what they're saying. Where it's like where you can sort of half understand why some people have fallen for this. Part for me is in the third act with a lot of these movies, but we'll get into that when we review them. I think I think you're going to find I agree with you. Like, a lot of it hangs on where they end up, but uh, I'm most of the way there on the premise with a lot of these movies. I'm reminded of a line from the little-known obscure horror movie The Exorcist, <laughs> when uh, I believe Father Marin says that the, the devil is a liar but he will mean to confuse you. He will mix lies with the truth. I think that's something that a lot of these cult leaders will sort of do. I also think uh, in the day and age where people are, well, there's no time in the world where people have been looking for answers. But like in, in the, the more stressful the time, the more people are desperate to cling to any kind of answers. And I think that like, in a lot of ways, there are cults all over the place that we don't just we don't recognize as cults. But a lot of these um, like fringe belief systems, like I think flat earthers are kind of a cult, right? The the whole the, the anything can be a cult. Breathinarianism. Have you heard this? People who think that food is an addiction, that all you need to do is just breathe. <laughs> that that when you get hungry and you get cramps in your stomach from hunger pains, that's just like your body going through withdrawal because we have this addiction to food like it flies in the in the face of like everything we know and there's no profit motive in this case like there's no it's like a cult that you just sign up for online <laughs> what's missing all that's really missing is a charismatic leader and a, a, a situation where if at any point you question this belief you are kicked out um, we have Six really troubling movies with six really interesting figures, these cult leader figures. I think it would be an interesting role to approach as an actor, not just as, like, I have to be someone who can carry a scene and hold a room and speechify, but also do that and play whatever the machinations are that are going behind the scenes. Are you a believer in this cult? Or are you just, like... Um, a narcissist, somebody who just likes manipulating people. And can we see that? Does that come through? And does it, in the end, make sense? And I think that's what you're saying with a lot of these movies kind of have these, go for the 
twist maybe ending or, or a gotcha moment at the end. And I don't necessarily mind a gotcha moment, but I think you need to earn it a little bit. And in some cases, not all, I think they might have stubbed their toe on the ending a little bit. But like you, I think generally speaking, because I'm so intrigued and terrified by the subject matter, I do to at least a limited degree think you should check out these movies if it interests you. I get that it's a niche market, and it was occurring to me, like, what do I call this episode? I was thinking cult films, but then someone's going to go in thinking cult films, like the Rocky Horror Picture Show or something like that. No, 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 literally cult movies. <laughs> Um, is there anything else you want to say by way of introduction before I list off these six movies and we get started on yet another episode of Rank and Review? Not, not really. I, I think, yeah, these, these movies seem to work for me on the whole. I, I just listened to your review of VHS 2, a film I haven't seen, uh, even though it's a few years old. And it sounds like there's a really amazing <laughs> short film. Yes, there is. One about I would have fit in here uh, quite well. It might be even better than some of these because it doesn't have uh, have to have the feature length quality where you feel like you have to have this third act with a surprise or a twist which kind of ruins the authenticity of the first two thirds of the film yeah um i'm gonna do a quick shout out uh i don't know what the best place to is to do this but a quick shout out for another cult movie which i think is absolutely amazing paul thomas anderson the master yep uh which looks deep at Scientology, and that's kind of when Joaquin Phoenix announced himself to me as being uh, even more than I thought he was uh, as an actor, and he's continued in that vein. Um, so just to your listeners, if, if you haven't watched The Master, it's actually kind of a bit of an underrated uh, P.T. Anderson film at this point. If there is such thing as an underrated P.T. Anderson movie. <laughs> <laughs> if, if. Okay, uh, the six movies on the subject of cults, <laughs> not, not cult movies, but movies on the subject of cults, that Jason DeVray and I are going to talk about this episode. The Sound of My Voice, um, that's with Britt Marling, she actually co-wrote the script, and, um... Zal Batman... Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see the problem I'm having. These two have collaborated since then on a Netflix show called The OA. The OA. I, I've not seen it, but it's supposed to be quite good and similar in theme. So just. I'll check it out. I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it advertised. I don't know what it's about. So. Yeah. Fun fact: uh, the Sacrament from uh, Ty West, who's a really interesting independent horror filmmaker, and. Um, I just also recently checked out this western that he made with Ethan Hawke and John Travolta called In a Valley of Violence, which is somewhere between brutal and hilarious, but, like, such a weird movie. <laughs> um, he did this uh, movie as a sort of collaboration with Vice, where a bunch of reporters are going to go do look at this very Jim Jones-esque cult and the whole thing is done as if it's a vice investigative journalism piece, which is kind of interesting. Um, the Believers, from one half of the creative team that made The Blair Witch Project, Daniel Murick, and the, these raw feed productions, which were very low-budget things. I think they originally aired on TV, and then they were mass-distributed. They're one of these movies that like showed up everywhere on DVD for a couple months, and then vanished from the history books forever. Uh, this might be the first Kevin Smith movie that I review on the podcast. 
how strange is that? Red State. I don't know that it's like really representative of Kevin Smith's work, but it's definitely an interesting piece of like Kevin Smith take on cults. Um, I think arguably the most obscure title on the list is Holy Ghost People from director Mitchell Altieri. I'm hoping I'm saying this right. I'm terrible with these last names. Um, and this is going for the more rural homespun sort of radical Christian cults that are very believable, like these things have existed, will exist, and do exist right now, so, um, and we're gonna wrap it up with indie darling Martha Marcy May Marlene. Thank you for being here, Jason. Somewhere in the valley, there is a woman living in a basement. She's actually amassing followers, these people who believe that she'll lead them to salvation or whatever. And yes, she's dangerous, but we have to see this thing through all the way. We began by preparing on the outside. Well, this transmitter records everything from the camera. We go out of range outside of 50 feet. Peter, that's too big to swallow. People need to see a video of Maggie. No way. Couldn't tell the exact location of the house. We were in the van for approximately 20 minutes. The first night is always the most difficult. To see her is to believe her. Of course, that's how these cons work. You see, the anchor is the sign of a traveler, and the number 54 refers to where I come from. 2054. Your future. Well, what if she is? From the future. Uh, no one is from the future. One of the things that all of these cult movies that we're going to talk about, I think, in this list have in common, uh, that maybe the reason the master not is not included as part of this, is that they're all very independent, very low-budget movies. You know, there's not a lot of money behind them. The stories are small and kind of get you in the gut, emotional, psychological thrillers. And when they work, they work well. But the problem is that they're a tough sell. The sound of my voice um, is a tough sell from a premise level in that most of it takes place in a basement, people wearing white robes, listening to this woman who is telling stories about how she's a tra time traveler. And I think that the performances throughout the movie, everybody in the movie, I think, is actually really good. In fact, it takes me back to my old theater days where, you know, we would do these really sort of long-winded improvisation, sort of intense scene work or improvised works. And while you're doing the scenes, while you're in the room doing them, there's a hypnotizing sort of in-the-moment quality to it that this movie kind of taps into. How entertaining that is to each individual person will probably rest on how entranced you are with the this lead performance, Britt Marlin. I think that the only place that the movie strongly stumbles for me is in the screenplay, but that by the time that stumble happens, because everything else has been handled so authentically, because I I don't exactly like everybody in the in the cult, but I don't hate anybody particularly in the cult except for maybe the leader herself. Uh, it it's not like another movie has the problem where all of the people are just blank zombies. 
you kind of believe that they are real people who are getting sort of roped in, who committed themselves to something. And the bigger that they commit into it, the harder it is for them to let go of it or to admit to themselves that there could be anything wrong. Um, the star is also the co-writer in the screenplay, and I wonder if that might not be the problem. I think that maybe they could about they might have outsmarted themselves when they get to the third act, which I guess we can get to. But for me, The Sound of My Voice is a very intriguing, strangely hypnotizing movie that is almost there. That's where I start. I, I, I might even go a step farther, that, which is going to be very frustrating when you get to my rank. Right. Uh, that I feel like it's one scene short of being great. Wow. Unfortunately, that scene, and we don't need to get into it too much at this point, but is the last scene of the movie. Um, I I had problems with it because it kind of undoes a lot of stuff that's set up for 95% of the movie. But I like this take on cults. I, this is one I watched, I think this is maybe the second last of the six that I watched. And so, and I was just amazed how each one covers a dis different type of cult and a different aspect to it. This feels like a mini basement suburban um, version of Scientology. And instead of L. Ron Hubbard, here we have this woman who, um, like she appears to have health problems because she always has an oxygen, uh, but she's, you know, very, uh, very forthright and tells the story of how she is from the, the future, and she's experienced everything that we're about to experience. Um, the hypnotizing quality, I think you're absolutely right in those scenes. The other piece in there, just looking at the year it came out, and I'm, I'm thinking of what's happening to the world right now, and that this movie came out before then, and this woman, if she was actually from the future would have seen how everything to do with this COVID-19, um, Trump losing the election, what's going to happen, and she makes reference to a civil war, and it's an American film. Anyway, I, I, I kind of found myself getting a little bit, like thinking a bit crazy while I was watching the film. Um, and I guess that's to, to, its, um, to its benefit that we're now kind of having, living through some crazy times now where... What she is saying actually sounds like it makes a little bit of sense. But it's really, right. it's easy to pitch a dire, dark future. Everybody, yeah. you know, like that's something that they can sell. And I think there's a doomsday sort of clock inside everybody psychologically. Every generation on some level believes they're the last one, that they're going to bear witness to the apocalypse or that they're going to be bearing witness to the second coming or whatever the end point is. It's going to happen during my lifetime. I think whether you were born in 1876 or 1976, on some level you believe that about yourself. It's just this strange arrogance within us. But um, it's an easy sell, and especially during dire times. There's a couple of indie movies it does remind me of, too. Um, there's Happy Accidents from um, the director of Session 9, a different Anderson, <laughs> uh, where Vincent D'Onofrio is trying to convince his would-be girlfriend, Marissa Tomei, that he's from the future. 
and they play this sort of is he or isn't he and then there's that safety not guaranteed movie about a guy putting an ad in a paper saying that I'm looking for a companion to go time traveling with and is this guy crazy is he and I wish that the movie had decided not to play with that because it really felt like they were taking it seriously everything that I saw fed into what I knew about cults there is loyalty tests there's a really uh, nasty scene where she makes everybody regurgitate. She first tells them to eat this apple and then forces them to vomit it out. And it, it has that uh, religious, like Adam and Eve. Yeah. yeah. The apple's intentional, I think, in that scene. It's a really difficult scene to watch. Uh, makes me sick, actually. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> But every choice made by the actress Britt Marling is telling us that she's not legit. The whole medical apparatus around her uh, to make her look fragile, the way that she's super soft-spoken until you question her even slightly. Like, she doesn't... You want to believe her in the way a cultist would want to believe her because she's pretty and she looks fragile and why would this lovely lady tell you these lies? But I see the mask slipping repeatedly, and I compliment her on her acting for it. Until the third act, when they imply that she is indeed from the future. Which I think is a terrible, terrible mistake. I mean, I, 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 I hate to think that that one mistake undoes the whole movie. Like, I would still say, if you were studying cults, if you were like, if you wanted to know what the indoctrination or the process... We don't see them, like, you know, handing out pamphlets and getting to know the cult. By the time the movie starts, they've gained enough trust to get into the inner circle of it. But it's entirely credible. Even its most incredible moments are entirely credible. The only thing I will give points to it is, like, the super secret handshake that they did kind of bothered me in how elaborate and silly and childish it looked. And then when we come to the end of the movie and it's a child who came up with it, that makes sense. <laughs> but I don't think that justifies us getting there. And there's just, again, it's that actor-student moment in me. Those actors going through this really sort of silly hand gesture thing, staring each other in the eye very, very seriously, if not handled well, would become hysterical or absurd. And to the movie's credit, it's handled well. It's handled so well that I let go of what I think is a deeply flawed ending. I I actually laughed the first time I saw it. The handshake? And, and then when the payoff, I was happy the payoff was there, even though I disagree with a lot of what goes on um, uh, around that plot twist, if you will. Um, I'm glad they had it in there so that I could go, okay, there was a reason that this was so stupid. <laughs> you know, a uh, couple things I want to say that are really nice about it. Like, I mean, it was on the road to be number one, and spoilers for the end of the show, it's not number one for me, but it was on that road until the end. But there are some really beautifully intense acting scenes, and you mentioned one of them, which is the payoff to this puke scene. Um, I don't think we've talked too much about the fact that two of this couple are... Um, trying to make a documentary and they're acting like reporters and they've infiltrated this cult so that they can make a documentary um, about it. And they're, they're operating kind of a dangerous situation and 
that's the stakes of the film, is I'm feeling fear for them. And there's kind of this, um, Peter Aitken, I think is the name of, uh, or Christopher Denholm plays Peter Aitken. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, he's hid this device and swallowed it. And so the idea of puking something up will reveal what he's doing. And so he's in this really impossible situation, which leads to this confrontation um, with Maggie uh, that gets incredibly personal and incredibly intense and beautifully acted by the two of them. The other one I wanted to mention was, you know, when Maggie gets challenged on what's, what are the great songs of the future, and she randomly starts singing the Cranberries. Yeah. And then the, other, the other piece to it that I was thinking of that this, the film would have not known is, um, you know, the Cranberries have come back in a big way the last few years. Well, Dolores um, Reardon passed away, and it kind of yeah. brought it back into the spotlight a little bit. Yeah, but it seemed like a random out-there thing to have. But uh, and I, I, this is a good piece. Like, there's this Asian couple that joined at the same time as, as the other couple, and uh, the husband questions her on why such an old song is a big hit in the future where she comes from. And he does and, it very politely and very yeah. delicately. But she, she attacks him, and that, that exchange is, is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and it gave that character a lot more. And then you can see what cults do to families, too, because he gets kicked out, and then he, and then she turns to his wife and says, you have a choice to make right now. Yeah. Go with your husband or you stay with us. She gives up her husband right then and there. Doesn't even think about it. No, there's no thought. Um, scary. Scary stuff. Very and you effective. believe it. You believe it. And what did he do? He said, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sure you know this. That's a Cranberries song, isn't it? It's like from the 90s. Like... He wasn't like, you're full of shit. He was just pointing out something that was true, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you, you can't throw facts at somebody like this, you know? It, it's like telling a Trumpist that he, 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 he lost the election. They're not going to hear it, <laughs> right? <clears throat> um, but you believe it in that scene. And this, this is a microcosm of something that happens in a grand scale. Like, it's frightening. I mean, I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking crap about religion, which the, you could sort of use movies like this as a rod to sort of beat faith with. I think this is what we're, most of these movies are trying to talk about is when faith is being abused. Or what they could be. You know. And that's why, you know, making it in, oh no, they're really from the future, kind of undercuts anything that was actually truly deep about it. Now it just becomes like a sci-fi thriller thing it's not it, it feels less real all of a sudden all of the time that the movie spent making me believe it they popped like a balloon at the end of the party and i just wish yeah. that they hadn't done that and, and there's a movie uh that we're going to talk about pretty soon which is similarly authentic yeah um, uh uses a technique that makes it even more more authentic but i i think when it when it stumbles, the stumbles are not as harmful as this is. Why, why do we go through this whole process of, you know, it, my, 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 my note was, what, kind of what is the message that they want to convey with this movie? Yeah. That we need to be open to people who tell us they're from the future and give up our lives to believe them? 
I, that's why I think it was like an acting exercise for them. I think that she was like really sunk her teeth into the character and really liked the idea of all these cool scenes to play, but they don't go anywhere. There are a bunch of great acting scenes in the room, you know, and um, I'm sure everybody had a blast doing it. They talked about a little behind the scenes documentary, you know, a lot of the actors basically just sat there and listened to her talk day after day after day. That's basically what their job was, but they were all into it. They were all committed to this bit. And when you have all these people focused and, committed to giving us something tell it tell us a, a complete story or, or maybe have a have a point her actions don't make sense if she's legit if she's legit she doesn't need to be insecure about being questioned the truth will become very self-evident very shortly so yeah. the ending of the movie categorically defies everything that came before it and that sucks it's going to rank considerably lower on the list because of it. But it's one of those things, despite my frustration with it, I would not tell someone not to watch it. I would say for the acting and just for the wrench that it puts in your stomach, it's an effectively made movie. It's effective enough that flaws and all, I want to check out this Netflix show that they did together. Yeah, I think so. Is there anything uh, else you want to say about the sound yeah, of my voice? Just one, one more thing, and it is kind of like a... Strange subplot that I don't think was paid off in any way. Uh, I, we've mentioned the little girl, and there's this focus on the fact that um, that, that Peter is a substitute teacher as well as that night he's making this documentary, um, and he's come across this, this kind of this girl who's a little bit outside of everybody else in her class, cute little blonde-haired girl. We get some shots of her home life, and. Uh, it, it appears that her father or somebody, like, I I got a really creepy vibe, like she's being yes. um, uh, actually assaulted or something, but they, they, they don't really do anything with that, and I don't know if something was cut out or, or what happened there. Yeah, I have been very complimentary about a lot of things, and that is something that is that is sloppy. There's a few times where they implicitly show, like with grainy footage, this is where this character comes from. They do it with the Nicole Viscous character, the girl, the girlfriend of the main character. The, she's yeah. a spoiled child. She was a wild child. Here's a glimpse of her past life so that we don't have to spend any time on that. Uh, and the fact that Britt Marling, again, uh, presumably if she's telling the truth now, that's her mom and her mom was sexually abused. And she's this reader the way we see it originally, uh, she can tell, she can just look at this guy's face and see that he's been wounded. And just the way somebody who, uh, you know, reads somebody as a magician show says, you know, this is a guy who's been abused and connects with him through that. But they were really slap, sloppy in the shortcuts that they took to get us to that. Like, they just implicitly told us that happened. There was no... They didn't try to sneak it in with some kind of sideways exposition. It was like, this character's name is this, and this happened to him when he's a child. Now go with the scene. They, like, really, really artificially give you that context, which is one of the few places where this, early in the movie, where they kind of stumble screenplay-wise. It's think. creepy. It's creepy as all get out, and it, it, it fits with the rest of the, the danger of the film, but there's no payoff to that that sort of side piece at all. I mean, yeah, I guess they, some of the scenes you're describing kind of try to connect it, but it's, um, it's just kind of left there. The, 
the other thing that bothered me was the police detective, the the woman who, you know, the first time we see, she books into a hotel and, like, checks the place for bugs or bugs the place herself or whatever, tells the girlfriend character that Britt Marling is not from the past. She's got a, 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 a different name and a rap sheet and a bunch of things that she's wanted for, including arson and a, a bunch of other stuff in other states, which completely flies against the logic of the movie and is not explained. Unless she's like a member of the cult. She's from the I'm sorry, could you say that again, brother? Say maybe she comes from the future and she's trying to stop her from telling <laughs> the people the truth in the present or something like or that. It's a test of their faith, but why does she need to test their faith if, you know, she's not a freaky cult? It doesn't make sense. Anyway, I think we've exhausted it. I like we like the movie, but there's just something holding us back from loving it. Is what it sounds like. Aren't those the guides? What are they doing with guns? You don't know what's really going on here. This place is not what it seems. Hey, what's happening? These people want to leave. They have their suitcases packed. I have no idea what to do. Sam, do not get involved in this. Please take my daughter. What? We can't let them go back to New York. No, this is the last sacrament. Hey! Hey! How many more people can fit in this thing? Take the camera. I want you to film this. It's important. It's funny. Take it. Take it. Take it. Uh, so, did Gene Jones, the father figure of Sacrament, look really familiar to you? You recognized him? He has an incredibly famous scene in an incredibly famous movie. If you watch No Country for Old Men, there's a scene where Anton Chigurh goes into a gas station and tells the owner of that store to flip a coin. That one scene role is played by Gene Jones, and he's awesome in the scene. The tension in that scene's amazing. Here he plays the Jones, Jim Jones Peter sort of figure in this cult that's being investigated by a vice journalism team. And he is so good and so chilling in this movie. Uh, it's a found footage or faux documentary film, and that comes with its pluses and minuses, but I think it's helped with the vice sort of construct. Vice journalists are known, their reputation are, they fearless. They go places where other journalists won't, and they will stick a camera in the face of anybody, and they will do it, you know, just utterly, utterly fearless. So I, I, I very quickly stopped asking myself, why are you still filming? Which is the, one of the, you know, key contradictive moments if you're watching one of these faux documentary found footage movies. They came here to film... They came here to tell the story. Specifically, one of the members of the crew has a sister that he wants to reconnect and, if possible, convince to get the hell out of there. It mirrors the Jonestown massacre very, very closely, and maybe, maybe too closely, some would argue, but I think what they were going for was authenticity. And I found the movie absolutely chilling. It's a slow burn, like all of Ty West's film, you need to be patient. 
Uh, I remember reviewing the uh, the House of the Devil and um, <laughs> getting a lot of pushback on how much that movie took its time. But the thing is with Ty West is that it's it's carefully calibrated so that when those moments hit, they hit hard. There's a couple of deaths in this movie that are very hard to shake. And it doesn't offer any answers or real conclusions in the same way that the Jonestown Massacre didn't really offer any answers or conclusions. It is a stark document of what it would have been like to witness it. And it's terrifying as a consequence. People are very split on this movie, and I'm prepared to disagree because I know a lot of people don't buy with Ty West, but I thought the sacrament was very effective. <laughs> Where do you land? Yeah, I, I, I don't mind a slow burn, especially when it like, scorches in the way that this film does. Um, I, this was perfect, the perfect way to use faux documentary. Um, I wouldn't call it found footage because I think people do get spoilers, people do get away. And I, it made perfect sense to me that everything's being documented because they have come to, to tell this story and get inside this cult. And, um, and, and they certainly get inside there. And this, like, of six very disturbing movies, this is some of the most disturbing scenes you can imagine. I'm, I, I just, uh, Watching um, people who are in charge of looking after young children, force the children, forcing the children to drink this poison Kool-Aid, um, is this is horrifying. I mean, they do not spare the children in this movie. Uh, I, you know, I, I think from listening to your show uh, and and what you said about High West. And seeing this movie, I am now a confirmed Ty West fan. Well, that's um, good to hear. So I, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure what the argument would be against this film, other than they they get too close to um, the reality of things. Uh, it, it, it is it is disturbing, uh, and the, the brilliance again of of uh, Gene Jones' performance completely to me. Uh, unrecognizable from his character in No Country for Old Men. One movie, he has a ton of power, and the other, he has no power whatsoever. Um, and even looks like a different age, even though I think No Country came out before this did. Uh, he looks much older in, in No Country. Um, but the fact that, like, during the interview sequence, uh, which takes place in front of basically his entire church, uh, the reporter... And you can see why the reporter gets himself all screwed up. And you watch Jones take control of that interview and then only get out what he wants to get out. And he makes these points, and you kind of somewhat, this is one of the ones where, as I'm listening to this, you can understand some of what he is saying and how those little grains of truth can ring true to so many people, particularly if you've been an alcoholic or a drug addict in Brooklyn. Yeah. The other piece I want to say, I lived in Brooklyn, New York, back in 2002, uh, and the representation of people from Brooklyn that are shown on this 
in this compound on this island uh, was very authentic. It was very Brooklyn. You tell they know they know what they're talking about. They're from uh, I'm not sure if Ty West is from Brooklyn himself, but uh, as far as approaching this, uh, it made perfect sense. And I think there are a lot of desperate people in Brooklyn, New York, who would be susceptible to a charismatic leader like this and would follow him and do exactly what he says. And he's able to justify all of them committing suicide uh, in a in a way that's just 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 so horrifying to uh, to watch. So my negative, like my negative note, because I, I am going to be very positive as much as this movie disturbed me. I think it it's brilliant. I I really would be on my my top lists of horror movies of that particular decade for sure. Um, there's a few horror movie cliches. We have this uh, really adorable mute girl who shows up and it's a little bit creepy sometimes when she shows up, I guess. But, like, the payoff to her character is so maddening. Like, I mean, they actually went places that other filmmakers wouldn't. It, it becomes so frustrating there. But uh, there's that, and there's a one little moment where, like, the, uh, the reality show self-confessional, if you find this tape, that's the thing that goes back to the Blair Witch Project, which I thought was maybe unnecessary, again, it, it, it doesn't spoil the meal for me. I mean, it's... Uh, it's familiar. It's, uh, it, is, it is familiar. There's a little bit of an... I think the, the, it's not that long a movie, but I think there's that, an unnecessary five to ten minutes in there where this one little extra melodrama starts to happen involving these, uh, kind of these hired assassins that uh, I don't think needed to be in the film. I mean, we're, we're past the climax of the film at that point. Uh, it was just like one last jolt before we finished that was maybe one step too many. But other than that, it is a solid film. And I, I would, um, if, if you can take this dark material and you can handle it, I highly recommend The Sacrament. Uh, it's, it's very effective. And I like found footage movies, by the way. Yeah. You know, not everybody does. Maybe it's part of the, the fight, I don't know, uh, with this film. But it's, it is great. The acting is solid. It feels very authentic. The context... Very, very authentic. There's some context that I maybe would argue could have been better read through the film. I, I, I inferred it, but again, like, I've read up on a lot of cults, and, like, I kind of know. But these people who not only were part of his sect, but have relocated their entire lives to South America to farm in this really unforgiving environment and live really harsh lives. Camping doesn't say it. This isn't like fun a lot of the time. But they're so committed that they have at this point they have to tell themselves that this was the right thing to do and that they're they're better off, however unhappy they are. Even at that, in and even with the true case, somewhere between ten and fifteen percent of the people there balked at taking their own lives and tried to flee. Those are the people who were gunned down. For the, There are people who did escape, but there was hired militia that were there to prevent people from escaping. And that's crazy enough. But it adds to the third act of this movie. Like, as they're getting out of the place, even after all of the immediate threats seem to have killed themselves 
Anytime they bump into someone, they have no idea if it's friend or foe, and neither do we. It is not okay until they're on the helicopter, and the helicopter is high in the air. And, like, I love how the first 45 minutes of the movie, I'm engaged, I'm into it, but you're just waiting. You're just waiting. You can feel this this thing coming. And when it comes, like, you go from wanting it to happen to wanting it to stop <laughs> really quickly because, ugh. There are two, uh, three arguably, but two that I want to talk about, death scenes in this movie that I just find so disturbing. One of the characters there specifically to rescue his sister. And his sister ties him to a chair and injects him with a poison. And as he begs her and screams to her and cries and tries to reach her in spite of the poison already coursing through him, he slowly dies in front of her. And it is, it is really brutal. Like, it is, it's not particularly violent, but it is, it's, it's, it's all, it's worse than watching a rape scene almost. Like, because he loves this woman so much. He's done so much to try to save her. And she murders him with a smile on her face. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's so, ugh, ugh. And there's another scene, uh, I think you're sort of referring to it, where a woman who has way late in the game second thoughts about this cult wants to leave but knows it's too late, but does not want to force her daughter to be poisoned or subject her to gunfire. So she takes her daughter's life herself with a knife to the throat. That one got me. I mean, that was... It's... it's... Uh, wow. Wow. And again, it, the point of view on it isn't as brutal as it could be. You know what happened, but it's just, it, it, it gets you right in the stomach. And this is some, it's credible. We don't know that that specific thing happened in Jonestown, but like, oh, oh, it, it, uh, I've made a series of decisions that have led me and my daughter to this place, to this place where the best thing I can do for my daughter is take her life before someone else does it. So at least she dies by the hand of someone who loved her. <laughs> uh, A.J. Bowen plays one of the lead investigators. He uh, conducts the interview and spends a long time tied to a chair, being sort of subjected to the, the, the father's final sort of case. I really liked seeing him in this movie because he played a likable character. I've seen him in so many indie horror movies where he's either a coward or a son of a bitch or both. <laughs> but it was, I really liked cheering for him and like I was on his side. He was not committed to this cult this whole time and he went in gung-ho, I'm a brave-ass journalist. And it gets too real for him. And by the time it gets too real for him, he is in it. He is stuck in it. And like, I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. He's so good in that, like, uh, again, I mentioned Jones in that interview scene, but he's so good in that scene together. And then right after that, he, he walks off in the distance and he goes, I don't know what happened. I didn't get to two, like, three quarters of my question. Yeah. That's never happened to me before. I don't know what happened. It's such a, a, a down-to-earth performance, and it, it makes sense that he, he has the confidence because he's done this before, this type of a journalist. He's never encountered anything like this. And uh, I want to mention yeah. the actor with that death scene, the remarkable death scene. Uh, I believe Tim Tucker Audley. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, fantastic in that scene. 
resist that, especially with the father. You expect him to be screaming, you know, hellfire, but he's he's very grandfatherly. He's there there is something like an old man on a porch just throwing some old, some truth at you, dropping these truth bombs, but they're they're poison. And he is definitely a leader who believes his own press. You know? Yeah. Um to the point where, you know, he takes his own life. That's another really brutal thing that happens full on, full on camera. It's hard to look at, but like, he's not going to put himself where he's in a box or where he has to explain himself or where he's not surrounded by people who believe not, not just believe him, but hang off of his every word. No, no, it's, it's that or it's death. And he's totally okay with it. And again, I believe it because it's happened. It has happened. It is happening. It will happen again terrifying movie um one wtf moment but it makes sense because i think the sister is wanting her brother to join this cult they uh they have this dance the celebration in honor of their guests and then two of the women go and uh take him for a, a threesome and it's just and it, i actually like I, again it, it's very honest in the writing there but then uh uh aj bowen there i uh, he says, you know, uh, threesome isn't very Christian, is it? <laughs> Good line. <laughs> yeah, I, th- this achieved both the authenticity and, despite a few horror movie cliches, um, the payoff, as horrible as it is, that I think Sound of My Voice was trying to do and was maybe on the road to doing. But, again, one scene totally undid everything there. And I, I can't point at anything that in here. There's some things that are maybe just different choices I would have made. But there isn't anything in here that undoes the whole film yeah. in the same way. I ask a few questions, I guess, but I never doubted the movie. I mean, the credibility of it. I, I, I was in it the whole time. The teacher is preparing us. You can't just kidnap two paramedics on a call. If we don't check in, someone's gonna come looking for us in a stand by By the time they have determined what has happened, we will have gone. Start the final preparations. Everyone, please report to the level three chamber immediately. I fell into a deep sleep, but the teacher woke me up. You were there. Now this may hurt a little, but trust me when I say it's for your own good. When the sun comes up in the morning, the teacher is going to take us to the new world. Believers, look for it on DVD. So Daniel Murek was sort of one half of the creative force that gave us the Blair Witch Project. I guess in my head, if you're on the ground floor of the Blair Witch Project, you should be set for life. But <laughs> uh, they seem to have parted company creatively. I don't think that they've collaborated again since the Blair Witch Project, but they've both done a number of films. But I feel like Merrick's story has been a little sadder <laughs> than Eduardo Sanchez. Um, this is a very little heard of, little seen movie. I think it originally aired on some 
like cable station and then was released on a direct-to-video type of platform, Raw Feed had like a whole series of super cheap horror movies come out under their label. And I've seen a few of them under the title, and this is as close to a good movie as I've seen come out under that label. And I guess by saying as close to a good movie, I'm tipping my hand a little bit. But truth be told, the, the thing about The Believers is that it's got this really frustrating ping-pong quality to it. There'll be a really good scene, credible scene, followed by a really bad scene that I don't believe at all. A really good performance, snuggled right next to a really shitty performance. A really well thought out sequence, followed by a really clearly sloppily handled sequence. And some stuff that isn't the movie's fault. There's like these weird insert commercial here moments that kind of break the tension unnecessarily, but like that happens in this kind of format of movie. I like a lot about the setup too. I think that something that's not used enough, especially in horror movies, is first responders. Um, cops, security guards, and ambulance workers are usually the people who get killed off. They're tertiary characters that get killed off in movies. Make them the protagonists, especially if they're not cops. We see cops all the time, but just like a cop, if you, you're running an ambulance, you're running headlong into a situation that you don't know what it's going to be. All you know is that somebody needs help right now. That's the only context, really, that you have a lot of the time. So you're going to rush into strange situations. Such is the case with these two ambulance workers. They respond to a phone call. This woman needs medical attention. And when they get there, these cult members show up and won't let them leave. In fact, take them hostage, bring them and the woman back to this compound, and they get insinuated into the group. And the longer they're there, the more reveals that go on. A, the more questions I have, and B, unfortunately, the less credible everything that we see becomes. I want to like the movie. That's where I come in and start standing with, like, there's really cool moments in it. There's ideas here. I like that they're going for this mesh of science and religion as justifying this cult aspect. But the cult is way too evil, and the movie doesn't know what its strengths are. It's kind of similar to what I started about with, we talked about the sound of my voice, as then like, I don't like where the movie goes, and I think that undercuts a lot of things. But unlike The Sound of My Voice, where The Sound of My Voice had really great acting and production before that, The Believers is shaky right from the get-out. And I think most people will want to get off the cart before it hits the finish line. I am very fascinated with the subject matter, and like I'm cheering for the movie, and I got through it. But it is clearly not the best of this stack. So that's where I start with Believers. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like this is the lowest budget film of the, of the lot. Right? Like, it feels that way. Yeah, it said something like Warner Brothers Home Video or something at the beginning. So um, I wasn't totally sure, but I did get the sense yeah, this was television. Uh, it does have television actors in it. Uh, their their main charismatic cult leader is a uh, you know I think a pretty good actor. His career didn't really take off after the nineties when he was in. Uh, uh, cop lawyer shows uh, Daniel Benzali he was in NYPD Blue and then this other show uh, called Murder One where he was the star right. uh, and so it's kind of nice to see him again in something that I hadn't seen because um, he looked familiar from the beginning and then I checked it out and was like is this the guy from that show uh, John uh, Paratas uh, who plays Victor, Victor. Um, 
He was in action hero mode, though. I think he he should have felt more on his heels. He he was always aggressive and forward thinking, whereas I, the the situation sort of called for someone to think more than to punch their way out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like there's kind of both stars. Like I, I mean, okay, let me start off with the positive. I I love the opening. It, it had me early on, and that's where, as you described it, once they get to um, this this compound uh, prison cult area in the middle of nowhere uh, on this really important day where, you know, they're going to get enlightened or whatever. Um, it was such a great setup. And I thought, well, here's going to be one of these small movies that, could, that we're talking about on the show and we can promote and confidently say, oh, check this out. It's probably a movie that's been lost and nobody knows about it. I'm, I'm giving it a small pass just because that first act to me was so good, and I kind of like some of the faces in it. Um, I thought the little girl in there did a pretty good job. She wasn't just just cutesy. And like I've seen worse. Like you're kind of doing a uh, yeah. Like I don't like being hard on kids, her, but yeah. The her character gets goes wrong in the third act, but I think a lot of things go wrong in the third act. This ha- also has the second movie we talked about with a very, very frustrating last scene. Um, yep. <laughs> Agreed. And, uh, a, a lot of the stuff, that, the good stuff that was that was set up beforehand and just makes every reasonable character uh, and re- like reasonable thought connected to maybe the criticism of cults goes completely out the window again. Uh, it was like I was watching um, some sort of awful... Uh, B science fiction movie, even more so sound than sound of my voice. I uh, in the last moment there. Well, this is so then, less composed than sound of my voice. So sound of my yeah. voice had so much air in it that I I felt the tension. There were moments where I felt tension in this movie, but it was never sustained. There was always something that bucked me off or shook me out of it. Right, the same thing we talked about the sacrament. It took a while for the for it to hit you in the gut, but once it did, it kind of didn't let go. This movie is just inconsistent, but you, it's it's frustrating because you can see all these component parts that could work. I personally think that the cult leader is a little bit too evil by half, and I especially think that the the, the actress who plays the 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 woman who we think is trying to escape initially and then is all weirdly hypnotized and there's that fucked up sex scene that goes on. That's the stuff that it loses me completely. Yeah, there, there are a lot of problems with her character. Like, she's... I don't know. Like She's she's experienced some medical trouble, and then I, I don't know what they did to her, where she's walking around like a zombie for the cult. Uh, and then she suddenly has a realization of what's going on late in the film. And, uh, like, that, that whole thing is so uneven. Um, another nice thing I want to say is, like, our two, our two first responders... It's through no fault of their own that they got involved with this cult. They're just doing their job. Showed up. Who they're responding to and who they're trying to save, they get kidnapped by this group and find themselves in this dangerous, impossible situation. Uh, another thing that I just, I, again, I maybe was thinking too hard sometimes. I should maybe just not be thinking, especially once the low budget film like this. But it's pretty easy for our. Uh, you know, our heavy alpha male there, uh, lead character, 
to sneak out this little girl from this impenetrable compound, and then they go on this ridiculous escape attempt, which has been thwarted pretty easily, and then they're back to the prison again. So this was not the most secure place if it was supposed to keep people in, uh, that he so easily was able to escape. It felt like an excursion, much like the sex scene. It didn't seem like the movie needed that. It was like no a way. scene to make it pad out to a 90-minute runtime. I think that as a director, like, he's he, he gets the job done. I'm not, like, wowed, flashed by it, but clearly it's micro-budget and, like, everything's centered and in focus. I, like, the actors, for the most part, don't bump into the furniture. I really, I don't know the, the name of the, the actress who plays the mother of that little girl, but I don't, I'm going to put it on, I'm going to put it on the screenplay. I was really bothered by her performance. I didn't, like, there was something that I just didn't believe about it, but I don't know how you perform that part. Half of the time, she's being fed lines to an earpiece by the, the leader, so she's just being puppeted directly by him, but, like, I did, never knew what level of personal agency she had, and honestly, I don't think the actress did either. I just feel like scene for scene, she was like, "Where are? what are we doing today? And um, I don't know, that, it's a key character, and she just sort of wall-to-wall didn't work for me. The actor is Elizabeth Bogush. Okay, thank you. Right? Um, I, I don't completely blame her, I mean, when she's in that fed all that information by the leader after whatever they've done to her. I mean, she does look like a horror movie character. Uh, in particular, her, her eyes are the right intensity. Like, it looks good. I think what we're saying, like, a lot of stuff in this movie looks good. And maybe if you have the volume down, <laughs> it's a better film. But the last two-thirds have their problems. I, I guess maybe because it's low budget, I don't want to be too, too hard on it. I think in the past on this show, Sometimes I've been pretty hard on these independent, low-budget films, and I'm kind of coming around to this idea that, okay, it's, it's really not that easy to make a movie, and I think they had a, a decent premise here, and just, it was harder to execute. And actually, I think they probably put maybe a little bit too much of their budget into that very last shot. Right. That really, considering the budget they had pretty good for like the science fiction effect of the, in the last shot of the film, but I would have rather they, you know, put that time and budget into the screenplay instead of, or um, teleplay or whatever, instead of the special effects for this ridiculous last scene. Yeah. No, but again, it's, it's... Gotcha, that horror movies feel like they have to have, and I, I don't think it's necessary. I understand the temptation. You want to leave people in a shocked moment, but is it congruous with the rest of the movie and does it make sense and like I don't know I don't know uh the the movie could have ended 30 seconds sooner and been slightly better but I still think it was already a pretty flawed movie I find the subject matter fascinating enough and I'm, I'm cheering for the director and I can see like the the ghost of the really good movie that's almost there so like I said I'm cheering for the movie but uh I can't rank it high not, not in this list. Again, the actor who plays Victor, I think he does a good job of kind of going from where, you know, where am I, and to the point where he's actually, he's a Catholic, but then he ends up following the cult. Is um, he traumatized into believing, or does he legitimately go over? Well, he, he seems willing, but I think he has been traumatized. Um, How does the... the beginning, 
Macho. He's in the same place, beginning to end type of thing, and uh, he doesn't seem affected by this. And you would be affected. I don't care. Like, you don't expect this to happen when you're on your ship. You're, you expect some traumatic stuff sometimes at any given moment to happen as a first responder, but something to this level would no. throw you off, I would think. There's something to be said for trying to keep a cool head and rolling with the punches, but at the point where you're in a cage, your partner's seriously wounded, and, like, you're allowed to freak out a little bit. You're allowed to show that you're a human being. And, yeah, that that, that was missing. I will agree with you. Uh, and, again, I think with the Victor character, like, if I, if I knew why he turned, if I believed that he was convinced by the cult, or if he was traumatized into it, but I didn't know quite why that happened, and... I don't know, pick, pick, pick an alley, pick an alley movie. <laughs> it, it seemed like there was something involving surgeries that they would do that mm-hmm. caused people to become faithful. To Shock kind of therapy, thing. but again, you have to force them into it. And again, if the cult's legit, you wouldn't think that that would be necessary. I don't know. I don't know if the surgery or the texting, but it was fucking turning <laughs> them around. But I thought he did a good job of acting it at least. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. Uh, it's it's a tough sell. Bet you boys want to get up to the devil's business, don't you? So get drinking, because I ain't drinking alone. And I don't let no man in me unless he's got at least two beers in. Yes, ma'am. Guys, is, is, that, uh, is that you, Travis? Welcome, family. Good evening. Good evening, Grandpa. I hate the wickedness in America. Rampant fornication, adultery, abortion, flagrant sexuality, everywhere. Hey, you, you fucking bitch, let me the fuck out of here! And it's up to the righteous to curb the spread of his disease. <laughs> you might take a chill right now, enough. Gonna get grown up in here. Send the sinner straight to hell. Send the sinner straight to hell. God doesn't love you. Let's fear So, uh, I should thank you again. Once upon a time, Jason Dubray took me to see Kevin Space. Kevin Spacey? No, Kevin Smith. He did not take me to see Kevin Spacey. That would have been an interesting evening, too, I suppose. Um, not that I actually, uh, well, more than a smile and a handshake, you know, met or, or had any real interaction with Kevin Smith, but it's like, does it qualify? You shouldn't miss, you know, meet your heroes. Does it dehumanize him somehow? <laughs> I know a producer friend was given an email by him, and no, it was never responded to from that email address. <laughs> I, you know, uh, it's one of those things where I have this image in my head where, like, he was an indie scrappy director, and like uh, he, you know, kind of stayed the cool indie kid no matter how long he's been in Hollywood. After seeing him talk, I can't tell myself that story anymore, but I still consider myself a fan of Kevin Smith. And what I really respect about Red State is this was him at least trying to make a very un-Kevin Smith movie. There's a few times in the dialogue where I can sort of hear familiar sort of echoes of the old, you know, um, verse Kevin Smith, but for the most part it stays pretty real and pretty grounded. A bunch of buddies decide to answer this ad. They drive out of state to get laid. And they end up mixed up with this really crazy cult 
headed memorably by Michael Parks. Um, such such a, a heavy hitter of an actor. Really the secret weapon of... Yeah, he's the secret weapon of the movie. I mean, I think that the, the movie, the script works, but with these monologues that Kevin Smith uh, is pushing, if you didn't have a really solid actor in that part, like it would not have been as mesmerizing as it is. I like how aggressive it is. I like how ugly it is and sort of mean-spirited it is and hard to predict. It's a messy jumble of a movie. It's an angry, dark movie. And it is, like I said, very un-Kevin Smith. For all those reasons, I respect it. He's not repeating himself uh, and, and uh, he's not doing the easy thing. This is not the Jay and Silent Bob reboot. This is not... Thank fucking God, Yoga Hosers. This is a real movie, and it's a really solid movie. Now, how I rank it on the list, I'm not sure. Um, it doesn't feel as real world to me as a lot of the other movies that we're talking about, but it is much more energetic and, I guess, sort of blatantly, aggressively entertaining than the other movies are. Like, uh, it, it makes a point of trying to keep you in it at all times. Like, shit is happening. Stay with this movie. And, oh my god, and gasp, now this person's gone, and where are we now? I like how the movie keeps me dancing and on my toes. But in its effort to do that, the through line does kind of get lost a little bit. It wins on entertainment value, but the whole overall shape of the movie is messy. It's messy, but it's fun. It's like barbecued ribs, you know? <laughs> like, I, I enjoy it, but there's some cleanup to do afterwards. Um, I respected him trying to, to go in a different direction, and um, I kind of wish that he would, you know? When I hear announcements of another Mallrats movie or another Clerks movie, it just kind of thinks, like, that, that's too bad. That's, that's sort of, you know, Kevin Smith announcing, I'm officially out of ideas. And he's an interesting filmmaker. Um, the only film of his that I have not seen is Cop Out. <laughs> like, and I, again, I just, I just heard so much bad about it, I just never made the time to see it. It would be hard to say where this movie ranks as far as it is the best of Kevin Smith, but, and again, this seems like an insult, but I don't. It just feels like the most real movie that he's made, in some ways. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel indie, it doesn't seem slapped together by a bunch of friends. This feels like a fucking movie. And uh, Kevin Smith's movie, part of their charm is the, their sort of homemade kind of nature. And this doesn't have that. This has polish. This has gunfights and explosions. This has Melissa Leo. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's noisy and it's loud, but it keeps my attention. That's where I start with Red State. This was a really tough one in this, this group. There are two movies I had a tough time ranking. This is one of them. It's almost overly energetic to the point of being so over the top. And I, I think he, he's trying to make a point um, about the United States and how people are operating at this particular time. What felt familiar to me was the, 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 the setup was these high school kids uh, and they're talking about getting laid and uh, the sheer number of fucks in the screenplay is yep. very different type thing. Sure. Um, again, that doesn't spoil the meal for me because I like Tarantino, I like David Mamet. I mean, they, you know, that's that's what they do. But I, I, I was really, really wrestling with this one. Like, there's there's people who appear in this movie that uh, I have no idea why they're there. Kevin Pollock is 
he's been in a lot of stuff. He shows up for 30 seconds, and spoilers folks for this movie, 30 seconds, and he gets his head blown off. Like, yeah. Why is he in the movie? Well, that's that would uh, for me that that answers itself. I think that the reason he's in the movie is he's a recognizable face, right? Like, hey, look, that's Kevin Pollock. I didn't know he was in this movie. Oh, oh, he's not in this movie. <laughs> I, I I think. I mean, he's just somebody for John Goodman to consult with. Yeah. For for five seconds, uh, John Goodman, and we I I think we we covered this on my podcast. And we've covered this before. John Goodman can will always make your movie better uh, than sometimes maybe it deserves to be. And I do not fault him at any point, and he's good at playing like the the energy level and the tone of this film because he can he can play like the quieter scenes, but then he can play the big action scenes really really well. And I kind of you know thank God he's in the movie and Michael Park and Melissa Leo has the some terrific scenes. It's a very emotional performance. Like she lures these three teenage boys for uh, a, a foursome, and uh, and then you know uh, she starts to uh, as as things happen, things like one thing leads to the next. Sees her entire world disappear, and she has kind of a a, a tough resolution. Like a lot of the characters in this movie, and I like that. And it, you probably have to have a filmmaker with the, the pedigree of Smith um, to be able to convince these actors to come in for these roles and realize you're you're probably not going to make it to the last page of the screenplay. So I, I liked a lot of stuff in here, mostly the acting, but I, I fought this movie. I probably fought it. I, re- I recommend it still. I think enough people will will like it. Um, I just found some things uneven. Like we we get to the very clearly the climax of the film. And we still have another twenty minutes of these scenes, like that, that whole sequence where John Goodman is debriefing on on what happened, yeah. uh, and uh, we kind of find out what happens to him. I that that could have been to me a two minute scene. That would have been fine. Like where 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 are we going from here? Well, like there's nowhere to go after. Everything that happens at the compound. I, I have, like the idea as well that they were basing this on the Westboro Baptist. Of course, yeah. They're all family, so this is, wasn't like they were recruiting people. They were trapping people uh, to kill them to show how sexual deviancy is rampant throughout the world and the United States. Send the sinner to hell. Yeah, but. To my knowledge, as awful as the Westboro Baptist Church is, um, I, I don't know that they've kidnapped people and murdered them inside <laughs> of there. Of course not, Jason. Of course not. <laughs> it's a satire, so it, and it starts, like, I think for the first two acts, it's a quite effective satire, but then it just becomes nonstop gun violence. There's a reason for that, because of the, the gun out of control, not uh, gun control situation in the, in the U.S. Uh, and this is how you solve your disputes through this. But but the, the third act really kind of falls apart, and then there's this unnecessarily long resolution, and I'm just like, what, what am I to be left with, with this film? Other than it was, it was a big, over-the-top 21st century ride, and Kevin Smith stretched himself as a filmmaker. I would rather watch Dogma, which was also 
I'm starting to feel like Dogma will forever be his his classic. I, I, there was a time where I thought he would someday overcome Dogma, but I don't know that he will at this point. Um, but to yeah, to uh, I think so. I think Dogma is his best film. But to address two of your your issues here, the ending speech with John Goodman. Uh, I have a bad habit of comparing movies to movies, so I'm going to continue that bad habit. There's a really awkward scene at the end of Psycho, uh, the original Psycho, where, where the shrink comes out and he gives this long monologue to explain to everybody Norman Bates' psychology, and, and this is why he was wearing the dress, and this is why he was using the voice, and, and this was the Psycho of the movie, and it's very, very, very hitting the nail on the head. I can see what you're saying, like, this feels like a separate sub-denouement of the movie, or, or extra chapter that's sort of mainly thematically relevant, but the movie feels over. <clears throat> but this speech that he gives about dogs fighting over some meat or whatever, um, about the hopelessness of trying to talk somebody out of a situation, like the situation he was just in, um, it, it didn't feel as on the head to me. I understood what he was going for. I think that I'm a big believer in leaving the movie at a high point. Like, one of my favorite endings of all time is uh, one of the worst part about living in Santa Carla is all the damn vampires. Click credits. Like, leave them laughing. I am a big believer in that, genuinely speaking. Like, seeing Michael Parks rambling to himself like a lunatic in his solitary cell, that's where you want to see the credits go. And I understand that instinct. But I got what he was going for, and I didn't think that it was as miscued as the psycho example that I that I gave earlier. Okay. I hope Smith was going to do with that last scene, to be honest with you. And like this would probably get it way over whatever uh, rating system that it has. I thought the very last scene, ironically, having him be sodomized by uh, some other prisoner. <laughs> you think so? Well, he's against homosexuals, and right. he kids and traps them in it and kills them and claims they're, you know, gay. Like, that would be a very brutal, I'm not saying, I'm not advocating for it. No. Sorry. That would be a, a knockout punch of an ending for me <laughs> instead of this. I don't know if I want to see that or anything, but it's just, that would feel a bit more appropriate. Life in solitary confinement is worse than death, as far as I'm concerned. Especially to somebody who craves... The crowd needs to preach to people, needs to feel important. Who's he going to preach to? The guy who slides a food through the slot in the door three times a day? No. No. He is going to be insane and useless to anybody, including himself, very quickly. Um, he's, not, he's not killed. He is defeated. But that's one thing I want to address about the movie is just how bloodthirsty it is. Yeah. Every time you think you have a protagonist, you don't. I wanted to also address the thing you're saying about them, like taking it to the level of murder. No, of course. The as a rule, we have no evidence that that the church you were talking about, Westboro, has ever killed anybody. But they do picket military funerals, yeah. and they do picket like funerals of AIDS victims, saying "Thank God for for AIDS" and and "God kills fags." And if you can do that with a smile on your face, if you can if you can if you can wave a sign like that into the face of a mother who's grieving their child and think that you're on the level, I for me it's not a big step, you know. It doesn't seem so crazy to think that they would be capable of violence. 
if they're capable of that to me, they're, they're capable of like that level of spiritual psychic evil, whatever you want to call it. No, it didn't seem that, you know, credible to me, like, or incredible to me. Yes, the people who are like cheering it on have those zombie eyes on it. And like, I don't care who you are. If you see somebody get like plastic wrap wrapped around their head and then shot, it's going to be disturbing to you. Even, even, even if it is a ritual, there would be some kind of reaction, but there really isn't. It's like just the next one. And I think that's a little bit underplayed. Um, but I have the suspicion, I don't know, I never got to actually talk to Kevin Smith, but uh, I have the suspicion that once upon a time he was a very religious man and that he has become increasingly less so over time. Um, when he made Dogma, he was a very religious person. And, you know, years later, having made Red State, you, I feel a lot of this is a much more cynical filmmaker here. <laughs> Um, and that's reflected. We don't know who our main character is because every time we think we have him, that character dies. Um, he uses his regular uh, sort of good luck charm lately, Ralph Garman in the movie. And even though he's famous for doing impressions and he's this, you know, world-renowned radio DJ, he's mute in the movie. He doesn't say a fucking word. Maybe that's just a little bit sly inside dope for, for them to giggle about, but like... There's a lot interesting going on in the movie. It is the most out there Kevin Smith movie that I've seen to date. And all of those things are compliments. And because I can't put my finger on the pulse of the movie, that doesn't necessarily to me mean that it's a bad movie. It definitely means it is a distinct movie. And that is something he's been getting less and less good at making as a filmmaker. Um, I just can't get excited about another Mallrats or another Clerks, you know? Um... I know that he thinks that Canada is just inherently hilarious, but like maybe he should stick back to Jersey and the Vius universe and things that he knows and understands. <laughs> that would be good. That would um, be good. I felt a little bit condescended to by the man when he'd made the speech at the show. I'm glad we went, and I'm, I still consider myself a fan of Kevin Smith. But that glimpse behind the curtain kind of hurt my opinion of him a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, there it is. I, I wrote at that moment because he had recently announced that he was going to uh, donate all of the proceeds from the Weinstein movies that, you know, kind of made his career um, to uh, women's organization because um, he, he felt all awful that he had profited from uh, the company that was run by such a horrible man. You know, so I... No, Did he do of, that for real? That's crazy. That That's the bulk yeah, of his career. Yeah. I mean, if it hadn't been for the Weinsteins or Miramax, Clerks wouldn't have happened. His career wouldn't have happened. I mean, hmm. there were other, other people involved for sure, but uh, yeah, he, 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 he did that. And it was probably a few months before we uh, we went to that talk. So I agree with you. It was, it was, he's, a, he's a pretty good storyteller. But you shouldn't be promising a question and answer session if you're going to only answer two questions and basically just spin all the questions into the stuff you wanted to talk about anyway. Just just call it a talk with Kevin Smith. And no, Matt. he was rehearsing road material for his next evening with Kevin Smith yeah. in a room yeah. where he felt absolutely no pressure, and he wanted us to thank him for it and kiss his ring. And he's not wrong, you know, celebrities don't come to this neck of the woods that often, but it was just how much he wanted us to kiss his ass that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But we're getting, we're getting kind of off the track of, of Red State. 
I think it's a really good, really interesting off-the-map Kevin Smith movie. And if he wants to win me back, I think this is the kind of thing that he should be trying to make now. This was the first of the six that I watched, and I was feeling better about it after I watched it than after I watched the other five movies. Oh, well, interesting. Welcome. Up here, we have addicts, former convicts, forgotten souls that other churches would have turned away. Liz O'Neill, know where she is? Sorry, I never heard of your sister. Wrong church, maybe. I was wondering if I could join your church. I'ma help your friend heal, and then I'ma help you. You're either all in, or you're out. What happened to you? Can you leave? Honey, this ain't no prison. This ain't territory you want to get lost in. When you handle a deadly serpent, all your pain, all your fears just disappear. So Holy Ghost People, um, the subject of cults is the thing that drew me to this movie. I, I don't know anybody in it at all. Not, a couple of the actors' faces I recognized, but I didn't know their names. And like the, this is the first film that I've seen from Mitchell Altieri. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, it's, it's interesting because this is dealing with a very hyper-Christian sect. It's, uh, it's a, a cult, sort of a backwood, backwater cult. But the stuff that they talk about, the snake handling, stoning, scarring, fire, uh, you know, these sort of tests of faith. None of that's made up. All of that stuff absolutely happened, has happened, is happening, and will happen. No matter how many preachers die from being snake-bitten, and you can look it up, it happens all the time, it still goes on. It's one of those fascinating things, like I was talking about the Breatharians, you know? It doesn't matter how many of them starve to death, they're still going to believe that they don't really need food if they believe hard enough, right? Um, I laugh, but, but I shouldn't, because it's a very real thing. And I, I think that when it works, that's the pockets of the Holy Ghost people that kind of hit me. I, I grew up in a very Christian family, and I, I wouldn't say talking in tongues, you know, backward you know, <laughs> uh, stereotype, but, you know, you said grace when you went to Grandma and Grandpa's place, and, and, and you know, a lot of my uh, elder relatives, if they were going to give bad news, would bless themselves before. <laughs> I would say it, and it's an ingrained thing. And of the movies that we're talking about, with the exception of maybe perhaps the sacrament, this one comes the most uncomfortably close to credible to me. I think that the 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 actor who plays sort of the leader of the cult, I I, I wish had a little bit more light behind his eyes, because he. Yeah. He kind of reads like not completely there right away, and that 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 right away puts you at arm's length. Like you need to be won over by him. Whereas, like if I felt the warmth, which is sort of what a lot of the other cult masters sort of lead with, then I would understand where this came from. As it is, you just sort of have to take the movie as these people grew up around this, and this is just who they had. I didn't buy him as a lure. I guess is what I'm saying. But the community, the culture, and the specificity of the rituals were very, very, very believable. 
woman uh, hires this uh, veteran to help her infiltrate a cult to find out what happened to her missing sister. Nothing good, as it turns out. Uh, what do you think of Holy Ghost People? Well, you know, I, I just want to jump on your point there about you know Brother Billy, who is the head of the, this like extreme Pentecostal evangelical uh, sect, you know, which has a little bit of Amish in them as well, I guess, or something like that, because at least how they're they're dressed on the the second day, but. He's uh, a co-writer of the movie and the producer. Yeah. So he would have been very invested in the project, but yeah, after watching some of these more, you know, Michael Parks and uh, uh, like some of these more charismatic uh, cult leaders in the other films, his his performance, well, you know, somewhat authentic in some places, feels a little bit bland in comparison to those other ones, because that's kind of the money role in the in the, in the picture a lot of the ways. In many ways, but that's kind of given over to, to Emma Greenwell, plays Charlotte, and then uh, the Marine, uh, I believe, as the right actor, Brendan McCarthy, plays Wayne, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I hopefully I have the right the, the right actor connected to that. Um, this felt, yeah, this is one of the ones I actually found a lot of these to feel very down to earth. You know. Um, uh, some of them, like Sound of My Voice, has moments where we're like, okay, we're no longer on Earth. Um, Believers is a little bit, un, you know, unbelievable. But I would say about, you know, three of these and almost four of them do have a, a real-world feel to them. Um, and when, in the third act, predictably, we get into violence, it makes sense because we have this Marine that she's brought along that he would have the skills to be able to do this. I think a little bit more than, you know, the first responder who certainly becomes Professor Stallone in Believers, right? Right. Uh, Rambo, this, he should not be. No, this one this one makes makes sense to me. Um, the whole business of the sister, uh, I, I think some of the, the revelations about the backstory that you were complaining about, uh, Sound of my voice, how uh, the backstory is, is revealed. It's kind of sloppy here, too, and it feels, feels quite un- unbelievable, which kind of undoes some of the you know, suspension of disbelief. But I was able to, I think, on the whole, go along with this and be pleasantly surprised by the overall quality of the film. Um, there, there were uh, there were some characters here that I, you know really liked, even in, like, kind of supporting role, uh, there's the African-American fellow, um, who is washing dishes, and he was a Vietnam veteran, and he is washing dishes with the Marine, and they have this great interaction together, kind of, uh, early in the film. Yeah. Because the Marine's an alcoholic, and he's, you know, he, he's going through things because he's, he desperately needs a drink, and they're having this conversation that, you know, like two veterans of, of wars would have. Um, what what happens in towards the end, though, with that character uh, doesn't seem terribly motivated. It doesn't make a lot of sense that this guy, like, jumps in and helps out our protagonists in a way that doesn't make sense because he's a guy who totally believes everything and he'll, he'll have 
around him, and he's, um, you know, we kind of get to reveal that he, he's potentially dying of cancer, and he's being prayed over by everybody. Yeah. Um, well, I think that what that's tapping into for me, I guess I shouldn't speak on behalf of you or the film, is uh, the sort of the, the Kirk Cameron influence, right? Uh, you, God helped you to kick drugs. So you are forever indebted to God. It wasn't you. Like, you could not have done that on your own. It was some other power that helped you get that. So it's you feel like you owe your faith to that because it helped you get over this hurdle. I think with people with the strong enough constitution to actually, you know, overcome something as powerful as addiction, that that there is part of them that's aware enough to know that, although that this was thing that helped them, that, that it was personal their personal strength that got them to the finish line. So as much as I think he owed a lot to that cult that helped him get over this vice, he didn't owe them enough to watch them m murder this man. Yeah. That was a line that he couldn't cross. He might still, you know, believe a lot of what they said, but to just stand by and do nothing when this guy dies, he couldn't do that. It didn't seem... I, I, I went with it. I guess because the movie wanted me to. I also want to give the movie points for staying true to its theme. It didn't turn out that at the end of the day they were right to be worshipping the way that they were, you know? That would have, <laughs> once again, kind of spoiled the meal. Unless it's a straight horror movie. Like, but again, most of these are at least pretending to be psychological horror movies. And I'm a big believer in, in, in picking a line and being that. If you want to be a supernatural horror movie, be that. And if you want to be a psychological horror movie, be that. Uh, and this is a psychological. Again, we have another guy, you, and I love this about the, the the father figure, the leader in this movie. Most of the time, I can decide he's a believer, he isn't. Michael Parks is a believer in what he's preaching. The guy in the sacrament, the father, he's a believer in what he's preaching. This guy, mostly a believer in what he's preaching, but he knows that it's bad enough that he's going to go to jail for what all this is. And he doesn't want to go to jail, so he kills himself. But it's it's not this righteous death like we're shown in sacrament. I mean, it's committed to a bit. I've always thought that drowning yourself has got to be one of the weirdest and strange, like difficult ways to, 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 to end your life. But did he drown himself to be embraced in the glory of God? Because his words he's saying as he's going in there doesn't seem to suggest that. He seems to think that when he sees this guy again, they're going to be in a lake of fire. So he's not going to the promised land, as implied, when he drowns himself. <laughs> uh, so did he believe? I kind of liked that last moment for him. Maybe it's an attempt to baptize himself, but he has to more than just like have his head underwater for a moment. He needs to immerse himself completely in the water. I, I don't know my... my Unfortunately, that like that particular moment, I was thinking too hard about it. Why does his body not emerge? Yeah. Like, they're waiting and waiting and waiting. Because it's more dramatic if he just disappears under the water, never to return. But yes, of course, his yeah, body... There's a bunch would... of rocks in his pocket. Like, there, was, there was no reason for, yeah. for it to, to happen. It defies any sort of logic. I mean, there are extreme things. There's the one henchman... The guy who's smiling and seems friendly all the time, which would be familiar in evangelical circles, is like, this person like can't be this happy all the time. We see these kind of strange scenes where he he picks up a gun, you know, puts the gun to his head. Oh, 
guess God saved me again, and he goes on to the next day, like, for mm-hmm. kind of, I guess it was to add to the suspense and the horror creepiness of it, but uh, those are just a couple of scenes here and there where I'm just, just questioning things a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, he became quite an, a scary figure late in the film, which is, which is fine, but yeah, I, I think that the villain needed to be a little bit more charismatic and a, perhaps a little bit more dangerous. Yeah. Like I, I, given the, you know, the background of this marine, I, I never completely felt that our protagonists were in as much danger as some of the protagonists in the other movies. Yet I, I believe that this situation could happen. There's a few things which are a little bit on the nose too. Like at the very beginning, we're we're seeing this bar where uh, uh, where where the woman works, and then and she meets the uh, the marine. It's called Saints and Sinners. A little on the nose. Yeah, a little bit on the nose, I think, uh, early in the film. But but still, I went with it. I mean, you could do worse. I'd I'd recommend it. Yeah. Um, it, it, It mostly does the job. I think it's just in a crowd of better movies. I also wanted to address the... It's a low budget affair, but the only place where I really noticed the low budget is in the violence. There's a, a fight scene where our our one of the hero figures, the veteran guy, beats a guy to a bloody pulp. And I think the idea is is that he like crushed the guy's face in and he is covered in blood. But the fight that we see that leads to that doesn't seem to justify it. The big climactic shootout when he interrupts the stoning, the, the, the sister who finds out, it's one of those horror movie things where she finds out the fate of her sister by almost living it herself. Uh, and, and she's getting stoned and he interrupts and a few people get shot, and the movie sort of shows its hand that it's it's not capable of handling that kind of violence. The the gunshots don't sound right or particularly look right. The dramatic intensity of the scene gets you over it, but it's one of the few times where the production's budget kind of gets gets in the way a little bit for me. I'll just clarify it. When she gets stoned, she gets rocks thrown at her. Thrown at her. Yeah. They don't tie her to a tree and force her to do all sorts of illicit substances. We're going to we're gonna keep giving you this. You tell us when you see God, okay? <laughs> um, I think it sounds like you and I are in agreement on this one. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. No, I think I like it even a little bit more than okay. Yeah. Good enough? teacher and the leader you just never let me be that i don't think she should stay with us anymore we can't ignore the fact that her behavior is insane i'm her only family we have to leave we all have to leave what happened i don't know well she's she's just a picture lives lives on my wall just a picture. You're my favorite. I won't lose you. That's all. Okay. Um, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Uh, that's a mouthful of a title, and that might have been the problem for this movie, and the reason it kind of snuck under the radar is nobody could get their head around that. There's a reason it's called that. There's a name that is hers, and there are names that are given to her. And she does have a problem with identity. I'm talking about Elizabeth Olsen, who's playing the lead character of this uh, this movie. And 
what this movie does that I think the other movies haven't so far is address the repercussions of the cult, like what's left of you when you come out of a situation like that, and in a way that the other ones maybe only hinted at or touched on, the often very sexual component to cults. There's a very famous cult in Vancouver that involved a lot of cast members from Battlestar Galactica, apparently, that is very highly sexualized about owning people and, you know, being able to control them in that in that respect. That does honestly creep into a lot of these cult things, you know. There's usually a cult member and he gets to decide, leader, who gets to decide who pairs up with who and indeed how many people he gets to pair up with. And part of the status and part of the control is very much controlling who gets to have sex when. Um, I mean, that's not the focus of the movie. I just wanted to bring it up because it's not addressed as directly in a lot of the other movies. Um, what strikes me about this movie is the coldness of it. There's just a real chilly atmosphere to the whole movie. And the ambiguity. Thank you. Thank you for the ambiguity. Mar she... Marcy, we'll call her. Uh, she calls her sister having escaped this cult and is staying with her sister and a relatively new husband. And her, she and her sister have a history, of course. There's a reason that she's messed up, and her sister has something to do with that. And she wants to be there to help, but Elizabeth Olsen's character is a hot mess, and she does act out, and she is a lot to deal with. And she's highly judgmental of these people who are trying to help her on top of that. And in spite of all of these sour things that she's doing, our heart still goes out with her. It would be a real balancing act as an actor to, to play this part, because some of the stuff that she says is unforgivable. And the stuff that she's been through is really heavy, but like, it seems like a lot of bad choices. And it all comes from this place where this young woman just was needing love so badly. Her entire life, she needed this sense of love and belonging. And she found it in the worst possible place. This cult led by John Hawks, who is so, so impressive in this movie, because he is absolutely charming, absolutely calm, and absolutely convincing and warm until he is not, <laughs> right? But like, more so than almost any of the other performances, I understood why people would be lured in by this guy. He doesn't wear his crazy on his face the way that the guy in, in, in Holy Ghost People arguably was. Um, there was something about him. But it very quickly goes from, you know, building her up to taking control of her, owning her, possessing her. Um, these are the tactics that are used, by the way, by most militaries, you know, <laughs> to deprive people of sleep, deprive them of food, deprive them of contact with the outside world, break them down, and then build them up. The army wants to build you up into a soldier. A cult will build you up into a cult member. And the movie shows us the repercussions and all the ugliness that led to it and all the ugliness that is left over after it. She is convinced that the cult is after her. And I've seen the movie three times now, and I still don't know if it's true or not. And I love that about the movie. I love that about the movie. 
So I think you can tell I'm pretty enthusiastic about it. The acting is strong, it's committed to its themes, and not only that, it goes further than most of the cult movies that we've talked about so far. It's like, once you're rescued from the cult, it's not over for you. Your life has a likely permanent dent in it, not just from what has happened to you, but for what it's going to take to turn you back into a person who is not trapped in this headset. I am very impressed with the movie. It's, it's more subtle than the other movies that we're talking about in many ways. Yeah. Um, I think where it goes a little bit dramatic is, uh, it reminded me a little bit more of the Manson stuff. Um, because they start to look at home invasions and murders. Yes. Kind of, sort of towards, a little bit into the third act, I guess, the second into the third act. Uh, and that part I, I was finding, like, it's scary, but might have been a touch overly dramatic, but then it does make sense as far as the danger of these people and the paranoia that Elizabeth Olsen has in the last third of the film that they're going to, you know, find her and, and, and catch up to her. Plus, she does a stupid thing. She phones them in a kind of a low moment and, and, and ends up talking to somebody who she doesn't know, and she's not sure if, uh, you know, the, call, the uh, phone rings right after they're able to trace where she is. So, right. Um, and does this endanger her sister? Like, does this jeopardize, you know, the, the people who are trying to help her? It's interesting how much she fights her help, too. Like, she asks for help, and yet she fights it. Yeah. Well, she'll sort of claim that she is independent, and she's a woman now, and she can take care of herself. But then she's a, a little girl. Like she does, there's all this stuff she doesn't know. She she does doesn't know that she it's not okay to walk in and start sleeping on the bed where her sister and her sister's husband are having sex. Yeah. She, you know, she has this uh, fancy dress on, which she thinks is too much, and then she ends up peeing her pants, and then like a little kid, she bundles it up and hides it and puts it underneath her mattress. You know, so you can see like how the development of this person has been so um, dramatically altered by this cult that for her, again, to be able to function in the world going forward is, is going to be very, very difficult. Uh, I think this film has deals with a couple things really well. Uh, the trauma of escaping a cult is, is, is very uh, present. But also how it, it rings true to me, even though it's very frustrating, just, you know, I've studied psychology, I'm a counselor myself in like the high school setting, um, but watching uh, how the couple, so Sarah Paulson, who's an exceptional actor, and I just wanted to highlight her, she plays the sister, Lucy, how her and uh, Hugh Dancy, who's Ted, who's uh, her husband, um, how they are not recognizing the trauma that... Elizabeth Olsen has gone through. They just see the crazy. And they she don't won't tell them, though. It. They keep asking her, and she keeps not telling them, too. They know something happened, but they don't know what. Yeah. But they, they, they are seem hell-bent on trying to uh, make her act normal and putting her in situations where she's not ready, like dressing her up and, and having that big party where she's recovering from that. that that wasn't that helpful um and you know there's just things that you, you can tell they don't understand and we are seeing through uh 
she's been through. So it, it, it makes sense. And I, I do not to get too, like, beyond this movie, but I think families do struggle with uh, family members who have uh, mental illness or have experienced some sort of trauma when they are, you know, acting out in some ways. And the family just doesn't know what to do, and they're trying really hard. And, and I think that's, that's all very well handled and very authentic in this movie. Yeah. Um, the other piece at the risk of, you know, getting, like, too feminist about it, but I think this also does a good job of showing a type of cult where we have this, uh, you know, heterosexual male figure um, who, you know, controls the identity and the actions of the women, and she's very much controlled by this man. Uh, I'm not sure how old she's supposed to be in the flashback scenes, um, because uh, uh, I, she looks like she's in her 20s there, but um, there's a really kind of horrifying sequence where he takes her virginity. Um, and again, like, Elizabeth Olsen looks quite a bit older than, like, but I, I don't know if she's supposed to be 14 or 15 at the time this happens. Uh, so um, that's that seems tough. And then you see her then do the same thing with another actor I want to point out who's very good. Julia Garner, she's in a show I quite like called Ozark. She's won a couple Emmy Awards for it. Right. Um, she makes that show, and anything she's in, I just a great face to see. She's the new girl, and then Elizabeth Olsen takes her under her wing and gives her this kind of rape drug and sets her up too to be, you know, essentially uh, the next victim. Call it rape, but uh, but John Fox comes in and has sex with her too. I'll call it rape. All of the women. I will call it rape if they if you if you drug yeah, a girl. Is rape. Yeah, um, in, in the cult they are calling it rape. Is no, what I'm saying. yeah, um, I call it rape. Yes. Yeah, it, the, the, what I like about the movie is that none of it just happens though. I mean, you're right. We do get to the home invasion yeah. murder, but we get there. She doesn't show up and is immediately on board, and she goes from victim to you know facilitator, right? And yeah. this is very true. You go from being taken into a cult and you know believing a hundred percent. And yet, the tactics they use to recruit are not the tactics of believers. They will make a point of separating you from all of your friends and family. They will steal your cell phone from you. They will deprive you of food. They will deprive you of sleep. And they will do it in a calculated way to mold your brain the way they want it to. I think with Martha, or Marcy, or whoever you want to call her, she was most of the way there because... Yeah, because she was this raw nerve of need and want and just so needing of some kind of love and respect, like, it was not a long journey for her to go from, you know, a relatively sane, measured person to facilitating the rape of somebody else or participating in a home invasion. Um, it doesn't just happen. The movie gets us there. Uh, so those those things are a little bit more earned for me. It's a relatively easy escape from this cult when you think about it. Like there's some real danger in early scenes uh, where I thought we you know we were going to be the thing where she gets you know found out uh, that that guy finds her in that restaurant. And I thought she was gonna they were gonna find some way to drag her back there, but she manages to get away from it. Um, fairly easily, but I think that the movie's more interested in how she's reliving it in the psychological trauma, and it's like she's she's still there, no matter
matter where she goes for the rest of her life. She's at, you know, in, in a lake, beautiful lake community, or if she's in the middle of New York City, or she's, again, in if, if they commit her to some sort of uh, institution or whatever, I, I think it's, you know, she has to be almost reprogrammed to be able to function in uh, the real world. I hate to use that term, reprogram, but it, it would be, you you almost want to see what, what happens to her 10 years after this movie. And it could take... It could take that long for her to resemble "quote unquote" normal, whatever, whatever that is. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I, I yeah, I don't know what normal is. Uh, normal is I think everybody experiences trauma to some some degree, but uh, the trauma of you know escaping and surviving a cult is that, that's a very real thing, and it's it's a very challenging thing to uh, to treat. And the longer you're in it, the worse it is because. You don't just lose, you know, your your philosophy, your life system, your your you know your 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 whole barometer to how you sort of approach the world, and all of your friends and family. You lose all of it simultaneously. Yeah. And uh, uh, fighting against the capitalist, materialistic nature of the world we live in, and like you sort of understand some of those criticisms when you see it, but at, at the same time. Yeah, it, it's fine to have those beliefs, but to be controlled by this group of people uh, is really horrifying. But it, it feels real. It feels like stories I've read about, stories I've heard. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if I've ever, you know, yeah, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who survived a cult, but it, 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 it it just reads as quite authentic. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of, I think, announced that, you know, Elizabeth Olsen is kind of the best of all the old Olsen kids. You know? um, she, she's, I believe, younger than the twins, right? It's a brave uh, and nuanced. are terrific performances. Oh, for sure. There's nuance to it. It's brave. She's, you know, physically putting herself out there quite a bit. And, and yeah, it definitely announced her, you know. Um, I, again, Marvel hasn't really done enough with her for me to go, wow, this was the movie that was like, yeah, wow, agreed. Um, I, 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 she was really good in that Silent House remake, too, but few movies have matched her talent. Like, uh, you know, she's better than Godzilla and better than the role she's been given in the Marvel Universe, yeah. anyway, at least so far. Um, yeah. I really like the movie, and I just want to especially compliment something that a lot of people might find out outrageous, but that that ending. I mean... She doesn't have a, a, a make-good speech with her sister and her sister's boyfriend that makes everything better. In fact, one of the last things she says to her sister in the film, her pregnant sister, is that you're going to be a terrible mother. <laughs> right? I'm not sure if they're pregnant. They've been trying to get or, pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, she was. You don't say that to your sister. You don't say that to anybody. Like, even if it's true, you don't say that shit to them. And uh, it's not clean. It's not okay. And when she's swimming in the lake and she looks across and she sees John Hawks sitting on that rock, did she really see him? We don't know. We don't know. I don't think so. I don't think she did, but, I mean, the movie doesn't tell us. And that whole car ride where she's going to, you know, get somewhere, where she's presumably going to get help, 
Are they being followed by cultists? I mean, the movie doesn't give you any answers. And I can see some people going, what? That's it? How dare they? And for me, it was just like, this is her life. She doesn't know if she's ever going to get better. She doesn't know if the cult's after her or not. And that's her moment-to-moment, day-to-day. That's where she exists. And if there's no resolution for her, why give it to us? Yeah. I mean, the mistakes that some of the other movies made with their endings is not present here. No. Uh, and like, I, I guess I'm going to pick on Red State because I think it had an equivalent budget to this film. Right. Is, you know, instead of having a big, long, you know, uh, as much as I, I do enjoy that analogy that you mentioned that John Goodman came up with in that movie, but we, we have this 20 minutes of, of, a, of a, a, a denouement to resolution here, and we don't have that here. We have this, this car ride and what just happened in that last moment, and it causes you to think, much like, again, this is a high compliment, and this movie isn't as good as the movie I'm going to mention, but uh, the last scene of Old Brother were, or Old Brother, uh, No Country for Old Men, people were, if they weren't listening to Tommy Lee Jones' monologue, they completely missed it, and they're like, how is, really? how is this you know, the end? <laughs> yeah. How is this the end? But then they're forced to go back and watch it again. And this, I, this is, uh, I've only watched this movie once. This was another one I, I chose the show because I hadn't seen any of these movies before. So I'm looking forward to seeing this movie again because I think there's more, I don't know, it sounds like I'll have more questions and answers um, after watching it again. But it's, uh, it's an impressive film. It felt different than the other five, though. It just it just feels uh, like it's it's more about um, the victim and maybe even the most down to earth of all of the films that that we're looking at. And I think on the whole, most of these movies did a pretty good job of being somewhat realistic, even if their third acts were very violent and, and kind of stretched out dramatically. Yeah, but this one felt quite true to life. It's just we're seeing. Um, I'm, I'm taking the position that I think she, this is her paranoia and this is part of, you know, uh, the trauma she's experienced, that they aren't actually there, they aren't chasing after her, yeah. but she thinks they are, and we're seeing her point of view through most of the film, so, but you're right, we don't we don't know, I don't know. And I appreciate what, what it, is. I appreciate yeah. it, it does feel chillingly real world, and to the movie's benefit. six absolutely dour (laughs) movies on the subject of cults. It's a weird thing to get so interested in. Like I said at the beginning of all of this, like I do find it strangely fascinating and horrifying. There's a documentary called Scientology, the prison of belief. Um, It's a really interesting documentary because a lot of people that are coming out of the cult, like you, they seem really rational, really normal, really successful, healthy people. And when they talk about some of the stuff that they subjected themselves to, it is it is genuinely shocking. And the real horrifying thing about it is that that's true of Scientology, but it's true of most cults, and to a point, most religions at some level. 
not wall to wall, not soup to nuts, not everybody who participates, but it's just something that is so easy to be corrupted. It, it, you know, at power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when you give somebody the power that they are speaking on behalf of the future or a god or, or, or you know, if you really buy into that, <laughs> it's it's terrifying. So I guess these movies are appropriately dour and chilling. Um, you said you watched them all within 48 hours, and I, I can't imagine what that would have <laughs> affected you psychologically. But I'm curious to hear how these movies are going to rank. And uh, hopefully the next time we meet, we have a, at least a couple of fun titles in the mix. <laughs> You two have been through a lot. She's just lost her parents. You know what? Just keep her. Just keep her. Just keep her. (laughs) That's how society works. Fourth, um, 
how to end it. That's maybe what the problem was. Uh, and they didn't follow through with a couple of subplot issues there. But the potential was so strong, that's maybe why I'm being extra hard on it. Probably exceeding, because I thought, just based on the title and look of it, it looked like it but Holy Ghost People is all the way up to third for me. I I just, the real world, as much as like the third act is, is really extreme and out there with the violence, I, I think, and it, you, you said it, there's just something that felt uh, true to life about some of these characters and the situation, no matter how convoluted some aspects of the screenplay started to be, I I, I think I, I, I really, really went along with this story and uh, I think there's there's talent there and there's stuff that's that's interesting enough in the film. Um, I wasn't sure. This is a, almost the reverse of Believers. I wasn't sure I was going to like it in the, during the first act, but then they kind of won me over by the end. Second place, again, probably I, I thought this was going to be number one, but Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene is second place for me. Again, I will acknowledge it is probably the most real world of all of these, and I, I appreciate there's a movie out there talking about, you know, is based in reality and based in psychology, about somebody who has survived a cult. Uh, the acting's very good. I'm not sure how, like, the concept is scary, but I'm not sure how genuinely scary it was if I'm looking at these as, as kind of horror movies. They weren't all horror movies, I suppose, but nothing creeped me out more than the sacrament. And it's one of the best uses of the, the faux documentary, the forest perspective that I've seen. And, and I, I said, I think like if, if we end up someday doing the, the best horror movies of the 20 teens, I think the sacrament has to be on that list because it is a disturbing, disturbing film. Uh, and I, I just, I just like how it, you know, it, how it presents itself, you know where it's going, and I, I like Ty West's slow build. Some people might not like it, but uh, if, you know, all of his movies are as good as this one, I'm looking forward to seeking out more of them. Yeah. So that's my list. It's a good list. Uh, I love me some Ty West, too, and, like, uh, he's earned my trust. Yeah, his movies take their time, but with very few exceptions, they have paid off for me. There's one called The Roost that's not so great. And I assume he was hired to do the sequel to Cabin Fever. It doesn't particularly feel like a Ty West movie. But The House of the Devil and The Innkeepers and The Sacrament, all of them slow burns, all of them absolutely worth it. The thing about our list, man, is that we're really close. It really is Red State that stunk up the the list because like if if I if I put move Red State the list becomes pretty much identical, but for me I had to put the believers at the bottom. I'm still a believer in Mirik, the, the director. Um, he hasn't had the same success as as Eduardo Sanchez, but like I don't think he's you know his success is unearned. I just don't think this is one of his high watermarks. You know, uh, it's decent, but, you know, in this list of movies, it's just crowded out. Somewhere between the budget, made for TV, some wonky acting, there's just more to pick at at this movie for me than there was at any others. So, there it is at the bottom of the list. 
It seems unkind, but Sound of My Voice goes to fifth place. There's something about a movie that's so close to being great that, that, that kind of spills all of its assets at the last second that kind of hurts more, <laughs> you know? Like, there's there's so much good in the movie that the fact that they kind of abandoned it less, leaves, leaves you with a sour taste in your mouth. The worst part of the movie is where they leave you, and that's unfortunate for me, especially because you get the feeling like they were going for a, oh, shit, wow moment, and that's not that's not how I received it. But, it was uh, a good wow. Yeah. Still, even though I'm putting it in fifth place, if the subject matter interests you, I would not discourage you from checking out the movie. Sound of My Voice, fifth place. Holy Ghost People, fourth place. I like that it's more seated in reality, but like I said, I just didn't see the connection or the lure of the main character. And there's just a, there's a little bit of wonkiness to the production. But there are... The take is correct. I think that the approach is absolutely dead right. Um, I think that, you know, the, there's an element to having your hands tied when your budget is low and your concept is high. And uh, I'm largely happy with the movie. It's, that's where it washed up. Alas, all the way in third place is maybe where I generously... I've got a soft spot for, for Kevin Smith in a lot of ways. Um, I put Red State. I really appreciate him doing something outside of his expected sort of Kevin Smith zone, you know? Uh, and, and and an interesting thing, like, yeah, I know he did that, um, what was it, Jersey Girl? Yeah. Where he was trying to do, like, a John Hughes movie. And he's way better at being Kevin Smith than he is at being John Hughes. But after watching this movie, I was like, shit, he could probably make a, like, legit suspense thriller or horror movie if he wanted to, you know? Um I, I mean, before this movie, I wouldn't have wanted to see that necessarily, or expected that. But now it seems like he could do it. He just chooses not to. He chooses to stay where he's comfortable. Um, but he's certainly not Oliver Stone or Quentin Tarantino. No. Right? Nor will he ever be. Nor will he ever be. The other thing that I think makes it jump the line a little bit is Michael fucking Parks. <laughs> yeah. He is... So good in that movie. Like, I don't get, like, sold by what he's telling. It's so full of hate and homophobia that you can't get into it. But you cannot take your eyes off of him. And he speechifies. Like, that that sermon he gives goes on for a good chunk of the movie. And in another movie with a worse actor, it would stop everything dead in its tracks. The fact that it didn't... The fact that I never knew where the movie was going, it just kept me on my toes. It fought its way to third place. Where I Him and Goodman are the reason I would give it a thumbs up. Yeah, for like, sure. I, I'm sounding negative on Red State. You could do a lot worse. Check it out. Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, where you thought we would disagree is where we actually agree. Because uh, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene Marcy. is going to make it to second place. And you're right in that like it's most emotionally, it's the most emotionally credible movie out of all of them to me. And I, the Oscar bait movie of the lot. Probably. I. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair thing to say. But in a lot of ways, John Hawks and Elizabeth Olsen deserve that kind of attention because these are not easy roles to play. No. I mean, the John Hawks character is absolutely despicable, but there is something appealing about him at the same time. Indefensible, but you get it. You get it in the way you didn't with Holy Ghost People, at least not for me. Um, 
that yeah, it's just got this poisonous atmosphere, not just in the cult, but the, just like the relationship with her and her sister, and this the consistent uncomfortableness to the movie. But the sacrament is straight up scarring. The sacrament is like it's it's fucking it's traumatizing, and like as close as it would be, because you can see they have a lot of footage from the Jonestown massacre, and like it, it's bad enough. This recreation is 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 absolutely chilling. Ty West has sort of slowed down in his output as of late, but he's been doing some TV stuff and things like this, episodic TV. But man, if whatever he has to give, especially if it's in the horror genre, sign me up. I was sort of broadsided by the, the, the movie a little bit. I was a fan of Ty West already when I sat down to watch it. But, you know, I, I, I kind of thought I knew what I was getting myself into. And I just wasn't prepared. I was not prepared. So... We should warn people, I mean, I, I don't recall ever seeing a little girl's throat slit. Yeah. It's on, brutal. On, on film, like, I, I, uh, I've seen demon-possessed little children and things like that, but I, I have not seen anything that's that shocking and brutal, because I didn't know what she was going to do at that particular moment. Yeah. And I can usually figure out what's going to happen from seeing the scene in a movie. It, it is horrifying. And it's only, it's one of like two or three scenes in the movie that, that you just can't shake. You just cannot shake. They stay with you. Whereas, you know, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene is haunting. Sacrament is like almost straight up traumatizing, like I said. But it gets the job done. It's horrifying and it has something to say. And man, the acting in it is so good. Um, it, it's one of those things, like, it's a hard sell. Like, hey, let's pop some popcorn and watch the sacrament. <laughs> like, you know, when are you in the mood to put yourself through that? I don't know. But when you are, it's kind of an incredible movie. It's it's an incredible experience anyway. So I have to I put it at number one. It could have been part of your, um, uh, your, your found footage uh, show where you're defending it because... Yeah. You know, this is great use of that particular style. Yeah. You know, um, faux documentary, forced perspective, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the best. I mean, it's, you know, up there for me with the Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity, like, deeply traumatizing capital H horror movies. Yeah. More disturbing than movie. scary, I would argue. So it's more grounded in reality because this, this happened. Yeah. I mean, this happened and... And like I keep saying, this episode are doing it and will do it in the future. It's a terrifying subject. It's weird that it doesn't get addressed more. I think maybe because there is something so icky and taboo about it. And there is usually that sort of poisonous psychological and sexual component to it. But I do find it fascinating. And I'm, I've always been kind of curious why... It, it's not addressed more in the horror, or if it is, it's sort of in, like I said, the Cthulhu, the void, sort of like uh, cartoon villain kind of way. Because there's something seriously destructive and awful about a cult. And it's amazing how, what things can become cults. Like I said, conspiracy theories can grow into cults. You know, anything can grow into cults. <laughs> Your bingo group yeah. that you go to every Sunday, if you do it long enough, could turn into a cult. <laughs> I, uh, we are more fragile emotionally than we like to think that we are. 
And I think that these movies expose that. And uh, that makes people uncomfortable. So, Thank you for being here, Jason. Thanks for having me. I hope that well, we'll find a, a maybe a maybe a funner bunch of movies next time. <laughs> Is that a word? That's a good English major. Funner. A more a more enjoyable. These aren't bad yeah, movies. Yeah. Like, they're good movies, but are they enjoyable movies? Strange. Yeah. Anything else you want to put a button on this? Anything? Of course, the no, shelf-shedding movie show. Check out the shelf-shedding movie show. Um, you were my guest for the 20th episode, uh, so that should be out, and uh, you know, I was really happy with that episode, how that one turned out. Um, I'm hoping to have a few more here before the end of the year. I'm trying to find a guest to do some sort of a Christmas show. Okay. Uh, I'm starting to feel the pressure that I need to get uh, the Christmas show going uh, pretty soon here. All of these holiday-themed shows. Uh, I had a Halloween one, a presidential election one. Uh, and then if I don't have it, get them organized and together. Because it's not easy for people to just sort of drop things and watch six movies. So. You know, give us podcasters credit, you know, you, you listeners out there. We're producing free material for you, and, like, we try to time it for this. I did a Remembrance Day show a few years ago because I noticed that my show was going to fall on Remembrance Day, so I tried to make it work. It happened again this year. I fell on Remembrance Day, and to honor it, I released a found footage episode. <laughs> Whoops. So maybe you'll find if you keep at this for a while, you're going to get less picky about trying to correlate it to this. I've also kind of gotten more to the point that one of the good things about podcasts is you can listen to it whenever and wherever you want. So if you are tuning it for the people who happen to listen to it the day it drops, I think you're tuning it to a very small percentage of your audience. Probably. (laughs) Plus, I don't have enough Christmas movies to do a Christmas theme show every year. So maybe... Maybe the Christmas of 2020, which has been a bizarre year anyway, people wait for 2021. Yeah, for me, it's not about Christmas this year. It's about New Year's. I, I just can't get drunk enough to celebrate the end of fucking 2020. Like, there's just not enough alcohol in the world. I'm going to let you go, brother. Have a good one. Right. Thanks so much. sound like it, Jason and I were actually pretty close. It was only one movie that threw us off, which seems to be so often the case with the Rank and Review. Um, please send your feedback to me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. It's been kind of lonely around there the last few months. And um, please tell that other movie friend, friend of yours, you know, about the podcast, because movie people usually tend to attract other movie people. By spreading the word, you're really doing my podcast a favor. Please check out the website at rankandreview.ca. It's had some work done on it recently, so it's uh, looking pretty sexy. Thank you so much for being out there, you guys. Thank you for listening to Rank and Review. I am your host, and I'm a Canadian, Larry Parsons. And I'll be hitting your ears every other Wednesday for as long as I can.